It lies somewhere between the pit of your stomach, your racing heart, and your brain, somehow trying to keep it all together. It's an area we call the adrenaline zone. I'm retired astronaut Dr. Sandra Magnus. And I'm retired Navy fighter pilot Admiral Sandy Winnefeld. We're two adrenaline junkies who love spending time with people who are really passionate about pushing their boundaries as far as possible. Have you ever wondered as you're enjoying a nice day on a ski mountain, what it takes to keep the sport safe? That involves lots of people moving at high speed in areas that are subject to numerous hazards like avalanches. Today we talk with veteran ski patroller, avalanche expert, and assistant director of ski patrol on Aspen Mountain, Samantha Haberman. We're gonna ask her what it's like to stand on top of a mountain ridge in howling winds, throwing bombs to dislodge a potential avalanche in order to protect mere mortal skiers like me. And much more. But first, many thanks to our sponsor for this episode, Culligan Water. With Culligan's drinking water systems, you can get the ultra-filtered water you need to fuel your high-performance lifestyle right on tap. Learn more at Culligan.com. We caught up with Samantha as she was just getting into the 22-23 ski season. So Samantha Haberman, welcome to the Adrenaline Zone. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Look, we've wanted to talk to a ski patroller and somebody who knows a lot about controlling avalanches and, and the, the overall business, you know, the people who work so hard every day to make skiing safe, you know, for the rest of us. And we're so happy to have you with us today. And it looks like this is going to be a fantastic ski season the way it looks so far. Yeah, I know you guys like it when it snows. I'm the lizard, so I'm not so happy when it snows. <laughs> but um, but hey, if we're going to talk about your work, and I can't wait to learn more about how you manage avalanches and control that risk. And, and there must be a huge amount of adrenaline involved in that. But we usually like to start uh, so that our listeners learn a little bit more about you. So how did you grow up? When did you decide to become a ski patroller in the first place? And was it something you've always wanted to do? I was thinking about this actually when I got asked on this podcast about how I did become a ski patroller. And I was thinking it was actually by chance. And then when I thought about it more, I may actually have been kind of directed that way a little bit. So I grew up in Aspen and I um, grew up in the mountains. If you asked me if I wanted to be a ski patroller, I would say no. I was actually extremely bookish and I loved reading <laughs> and sitting by the fire. Um, and then I went to college and when I graduated, all of my classmates seemed to have plans. They were going to grad school or they had pre-med jobs already and I did not. And I panicked a little and I decided that instead of focusing on my career, I was going to bike halfway across the country because that seemed normal. <laughs> so I went on a big bike <laughs> <Hello>. trip <laughs> and I did it by myself. So uh, half of my family was talking to me at the time and the other half was like, no, we're, we're like cutting you off because that's super dangerous. <laughs> and then I came back to Aspen and I didn't have a... <laughs> And you know, I was thinking about this, like maybe this isn't normal. <laughs> you and Sandra have more in common than you might think. <laughs> but keep going. Yeah. Um, and I I had a friend who had gotten a Fulbright in Mongolia, and I had another friend who was teaching in Japan. And I was like, hey, I don't have a job. I'm gonna go to Mongolia and in Japan. And my family's like, you're killing us. <laughs> so I went out there, and when I came back home, I still didn't have a job. And so I got a rental, a job at a rental ski shop at the bottom of Highlands. And uh, they were short on patrollers that year. And they, I had my wilderness first responder and they're like, you're hired. But I didn't want to leave the shop because it was Christmas. And I was like, you can have me like a week or two. And while I was 
working at the shop, they hired somebody else. But I think that kind of got it into my blood a little bit. And my sister was actually on patrol at Buttermilk at the time, and she seemed to make it seem awesome. And I'm not going to lie, the patrol in a ski town has a little bit of prestige. Like they, they're the ones that decide where you can ski and when the trails are open and shut and help you out when you need it. And so it seemed like a really cool job. And so the next year I applied and got in. I wasn't intending to be there for very long, but the job is super fun and a little bit addictive. Yeah. And to say nothing of getting those first tracks, but we don't talk about that. Yeah. Uh, is there anything, do you think, Samantha, that was special about your upbringing that kind of made you ideally suited for this kind of work? I think growing up in the mountains, for sure, like it wasn't a big stretch. And I uh, grew up skiing. I wasn't an awesome skier, but I definitely could do it well enough and get down anything. Also, just constantly be like, you step outside where I live and you're in nature. So you you know the risks of like going out into the cold and you know what to bring with you. So you're pretty prepared. I think I had a pretty awesome upbringing. I wouldn't say, um, I would say the location was just phenomenal because I'm right next to National Forest. But growing up in Aspen and telling people, I learned really quickly to not tell people I grew up in Aspen because interestingly, they look at you differently. <laughs> They're like, you must be extremely wealthy. And so, and it seems a little odd, but um, there are regular people in Aspen. My My parents were a carpenter <laughs> and my mom was a nurse and an HR uh, director of the school for a while. So um, we were just a basic upbringing, but the nature was a really big part of um, growing up, which I think a lot of people don't have. And our school system actually has a program where they take a week out of the school year and they bring all of the, the kids of the class out into nature. Like you start in second grade and you go out for Maybe in second grade, it's like two days, but it grows into a week and you go out and do different things like canoeing or hut tripping or something out in nature. So you are more connected, which I think is wonderful. So you mentioned that you applied and then you got accepted. So is it is it competitive? Is there a specific process? And then I'm sure there's a training program after that. So how does that all work? It is pretty competitive. I think it depends on the year, but um it's hard to get a job. One thing I remember is hard to get the the people I reached out to to call me back <laughs> for a long time because there's so much, so many patrollers or people who want to be patrollers uh, applying. And you do you have to have your medical, so you have to have at least your outdoor emergency care or an EMT. So everybody's trained in basic emergency medical care up there. And then after that. You do a lot of hands-on training on the mountain. It's helpful if you have your AVI 1 or 2, which is now the Pro 1 uh, or Recreational Avalanche um, Education. That's helpful, but not required to be hired as a patroller. We can teach you that on the job or send you away for training just to see what the snowpack's doing and what you should look out for on the hill. And then we also get training in ropes and technical rescue, just in case we have like a lift evacuation or um, we have to extract somebody from off of a cliffy area or out of a tree. So there, there's a lot of hands-on training and a little bit of um, going away to classwork to learn more about the conditions around you. Especially for our listeners who are not skiers, you know, ski patrol has a lot of diverse work that they have to do, right? You have to open the mountain. You have to do mundane tasks like put in boundaries and make sure everybody's off the mountain at the end of the day. And as you mentioned, you have to assist people who might have been injured and make sure the mountain's safe from avalanches and a whole lot of other stuff. 
And you have to do it even when the weather uh, is keeping most of us in the bar uh, and off the slopes. And you're the assistant director of Aspen's Ski Patrol. How are you all organized uh, to get all of those things done that just must be done before people can ski safely? Yeah, so we actually are divided up. We have separate departments within the patrol. And I think most patrols are like this. We have an avalanche department, we have an evacuation department, we have a medical department, and then we have like accident investigation department, which is kind of our legal thing if anything needs to be recorded or photos being taken or anything if something happens. But there's usually one or two people within those departments and their job is to educate the entire patrol on what to do in those scenarios. So every patroller should be able to do any task that is set forward for them. Like if it's avalanche control, if it's evacuation, you should have the tools in your training to be able to do anything that's asked of you on the hill. So it's kind of a constantly learning and a constant training every day. And every day is different. Like you get different scenarios that you've never seen before that you're like, okay, how am I going to manage this? So if I'm in the avalanche department, I get up in the early morning and I, you know, do that sort of control work. That doesn't mean that, you know, the rest of the day I don't spend doing, you know, your basic ski patrol work, right? Or is it just, you know, you're in the avalanche department and you just do avalanches all day? Our particular mountain tries to stay away from that because that kind of splits us up and that it's a little bit less of a community feeling that way. So if it's an avalanche morning, all of the patrollers are called in. We're all called in. We need all hands on deck. Everybody's doing a route or if they're they're standing by for other patrollers doing a route. And then after that is done, we all do the medical if there's an incident that occurs and we all do anything that's asked of us, essentially. Um, we try to keep everybody together. There are areas like some people might be know a little bit more about the snowpack. Usually might go to one person in the avalanche department and be like, hey, I saw this. Can we work on this? Or what did you see out there? And they might have more information about it. But generally, everybody does. We try to make everybody do everything. <laughs> you live to embrace risk in the air, on the slopes, and anywhere your determination takes you. But when it comes to the drinking water that fuels your adventures, you're not looking to take chances. With cutting-edge filtration that can target contaminants as small as a single atom, Culligan's reverse osmosis filtration systems deliver the next-level hydration you need to keep working at peak performance, whatever the day brings. Get started by scheduling your free water test at Culligan.com. Let's dive into the avalanche uh, management because that is fascinating to me. And of course, this podcast is about risk. And I know it's been a problem in recent winters in Colorado. And avalanche accidents can happen in the backcountry, not inside necessarily the places where, you know, ski patrollers are managing like Aspen. But how does this work? I mean, you, you'd go on a patrol. I mean, if we're if I'm skiing and I hear an avalanche bomb going off, what what exactly is going on? Can you take us to a ridge and after a big snowstorm and you guys are out patrolling, it might be cold, might be windy. How are you actually managing the avalanches or managing the snowpack? I could take you through like a normal avalanche morning. So we get up there early and um Yeah, perfect. We get up there early, we're all together and we usually have a brief debriefing about where we're all gonna go, what trails we're gonna cover, and that trails that might be risky for starting avalanches. And our job is essentially to set up avalanches before the public might get caught in them. So we are essentially putting our bodies in there to make the avalanches go off, or at least like it's either us or maybe a 
an explosive charge that we'll toss in there that will hopefully set off an avalanche before we do and um, make it safe so that avalanches don't go off on our public. Um, so we got up there early. We get debriefed about where we want to go. Uh, we grab our gear, which essentially we have an avalanche backpack. It's a an airbag pack. Their backpack that you wear on your back, it just looks like a normal pack, but it has a pillow inside of it that um, if you pull a trigger, it will inflate really fast, like in a matter of seconds and become a really firm pillow that kind of goes up behind your head. It's fairly large. Um, and the purpose of that is to keep you, on, if you were to get caught in an avalanche, is to keep you to the top of the avalanche invisible. It's usually the airbag itself is, uh, or the pillow is bright red or orange. So if you get caught in an avalanche, your partner can see where you are as you're traveling down and hopefully you're floating on top of the avalanche itself. Scary situation. Hopefully you never have to use it, but it's there for you if you need it. We also travel with beacons, which is just... Um, also called transceivers, you have them on your person and they're emitting a frequency that can be found with another beacon. So you and your partner will go out. You always have a partner. We're groups of two, but you will go out with a partner. And if you happen to get caught, they will try to see where you were last seen. And then they can locate your exact position using a beacon above the snow and then start shoveling you out. So we travel with airbag pack, a beacon, a shovel, and then a probe, which is if we're really deep and you want to find the person, you actually stick this probe, which is just a pole. It's about a two meter pole that you stick into the snow and try to find where that person might be, which actually is my least favorite part. I don't want to be poked, <laughs> but um, we travel with those two. <laughs> um, so you have all of that. But it's gear. good to be found. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, better to be found i won't mind the poking men but i'm like if you can see where i am and just start shoveling <laughs> um so we have that we have our backpack we have our beacon shovel probe we go out the door you get to the top of generally depending on how much snow it is it's a little bit of a slog to get to where you're going because the snow can be really heavy and deep and um to get to your location you may have to break trail for a while so um you get to the top of where you're going, and while you're there, you can kind of see off of road cuts and banks whether there's avalanche activity, like natural avalanche activity, going off these small little terrain features. They'll let off little avalanches, and you're like, oh, it might be kind of tender out there. Um, you get to the top of the trail that you're going to control, and initially you make an initial cut across the top of the trail, and your skis may have enough power to actually create an avalanche and like make the run go below you. If it doesn't, a lot of times we'll have explosives, and so we will toss an explosive into normal trigger points. And a trigger point is generally a convexity of the slope or like a rock pile or something where the snowpack is a little bit more thin and it might actually initiate a crack within the snowpack and have it propagate and create an avalanche. I'm just thinking that I would rather start one of these with an explosive rather than starting it with my skis, because if I start it with my skis, I may go with it. So tell me about that. Oh, absolutely. Like Michael, I'm like, I'm super happy if my explosive sets off an avalanche. I'm like, yes, now I have somewhere safe to go. Like I have the bed surface that's already slid. I can stand on the bed surface and uh, be in kind of a safe location. The scary part sometimes with our routes is if you throw explosives and nothing goes and you're like, but I know it's tender still. So you start doing ski cutting is our next technique. So um, we will actually crisscross the path and kind of big Z's, like long um, snow cuts. And um, you do them one at a time. You're always in visual contact with your partner. 
um, so they can see you at all times and you can always hear them. So you'll make one cut across the slope and then find a space place to, place to stop, turn around, make sure you can see them and they will make a cut. You want to make them cut the cuts really fast because if it does break, you want to be able to get to your safe spot fast. You don't want to be like augered down in the snow and essentially pushed over by the avalanche. Um, and then you also hope that they go off up higher rather than down low. So you essentially want to make these ski cuts fast and into safe locations, which is generally the trees, which is a little bit of a misconception because trees can also obviously have avalanches go by them, but at least you have something to hold on to. <laughs> if an avalanche were to break. So you're basically just clearing all of the areas where the trails and things are, and you're just trying to create avalanches in those areas. Is that is that how it works? That is a big concern. Uh, on my mountain, on Aspen Mountain, it's uh, interesting because we have a lot of public that ski down two main runs underneath a lot of avalanche terrain above them. So we want to make sure that no avalanches come down on them when they're just, even if the terrain is closed, we want to make sure that well, the, the avalanche train might be closed, but the general public is going on open trails below it. So we want to make sure that nothing comes down on them while they're skiing underneath it. So we may be doing these ski cuts just to make sure that nothing comes down on them. And we may be doing it right before we open to make sure that it's and like get skier compaction in there. Because that's really good, too. If we can get skiers in there and compacting the snow, um, it helps us for the next cycle. You can see externally the difference between a more or less dangerous patch of snow. So you kind of know where the avalanches are maybe prone to happen or not. Yes, that comes a little bit with experience of like, and also working in the same place and having seen avalanches happen there before. And also kind of knowing like the shape of the hill. Sometimes the shape of the hill is pretty evident. You can be like, hey, I could see where if that got wind loaded or that got a lot of snow on it, it might initiate from this one point because of the shape of the hill a little bit but it is a lot of learned experience and there's also that i don't know how other people might describe it but like there's a little bit of intuition when you go out there and your gut kind of is just like i'm unhappy <laughs> like the snow may feel oh interesting hollow yeah or something underneath you and there's another little bit of a sixth sense there that's like i am uncomfortable here something might happen and that does come with experience and being out there. Yeah, wow. The power of experience. So Sam, you mentioned explosives. So I, I visualize you, you know, you're going up with your uh, backpack with a few hunks of these things in there. Tell us about them. You know, how big are they? Tell us about the fusing. I assume you're just kind of throwing them down there and waiting for them to go off. But how, how does that part of this science or art work? Yeah, explosives are a great part of our job. Um, uh, on our <laughs> I know that's such everybody funny likes to, to play with explosives, you know. Come on, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it really, it really is kind of the best part of the job. <laughs> but um, other mountains have different types of explosives, and it's so it varies from mountain to mountain. We have pencilite, which essentially looks like a can of soup. It's about the size and shape of a can of soup. They're two pounds each, and you put a fuse into them. On our hill, we put two fuses into them just to make sure that we don't have any misfires. So if one of the fuse, we get like a kink in the fuse train and it doesn't go all the way to the explosive, we have a backup fuse that we also light. So we ensure that they go. Fuses are fairly inexpensive, so we, um, and misfires are scary. So we double fuse all of our explosives. And then you have an igniter that you put on the end of the fuse. So to walk you guys through it, when you get to the top of a trail, our explosives are put into anti-static bags in their backpacks so that there's nothing, no unnecessary energy affecting the explosive while you're skiing with them. Important. 
<laughs> Definitely. You're you're with your partner in contact with your partner the whole time. Usually your partner's standing next to you and you will take an explosive out and put it. We have little igniters, which are kind of these little cardboard igniters that kind of fit on the end of the fuse. And when you pull them, they, they cause a spark and then it ignites the fuse. Once you do that, you place it wherever you want in the snow. And then you have two minutes to get to a safe spot. The fuse length is about two minutes. And so you will toss it and then you will go to a safe Are spot. Are you tossing it down downhill? Okay. Yeah. And then, you know, cover your ears and... and Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly it. <laughs> you toss it into this. And then you'll make sure that like there's nothing above you. So the, the science behind the explosives is that they create kind of a pressure wave when they go off. So they might like cause a little bit of a push down on the snowpack that might cause the avalanche to go off. They also cause fracturing within the snowpack itself. So if there's a bit of a slab that's building up, that's getting a lot of energy within it. And all it needs is like some, like it's got a lot of tensile energy that's built up in there. And if you break that up, if you break up that slab, you can cause a lot of it to run off. Like and kind of break, get that energy out of the snowpack. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I, you, as you alluded to before, it must be such a cool feeling when you break off a particularly big one and, and it just kind of like thunders. How does that feel? <laughs> it is. It's, it's, it is. It's a great feeling. You're like, yes, I look at the damage I just made and I cleaned that out. And now it's safer. And it's also a little bit like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> I just did that. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a rush. You know, we spent a lot of time talking about avalanche and the risks you take there, but I imagine some of the rescues get risky and you probably have other types of risks you're dealing with on a daily basis. Can you talk a little bit about those? Sometimes we get some really big medical incidents that take a lot of hands and a lot of um, personnel and equipment. So like you could have people that actually fly off the, uh, the bottom of a run and they hit a tree and trying to get them out of where they are, their location without, you know, causing more harm, like extraction and then like using rope techniques a little bit to get them up off onto a bank when the snow beneath you is sugary. And so you take a step and you step down like three steps. And so like using, again, our tool bags of rope knowledge, like our medical and how to move people in the most gentle way so that not cause more harm, plus doing it extremely efficiently because if it's a bad injury, time is, you need to be moving quickly and getting them to definitive care as fast as possible. And it varies every time. So you don't know exactly what you're going into. Like sometimes you may be splinting, like stopping bleeding or splinting um, limbs or like I've been in an incident where you're holding a blanket over a paramedic so that they can intubate somebody. They can see the light and intubate somebody on the mountain. Um, sometimes it can get a little hectic, but uh, I think that those incidents are really hard, but um, it's different every day. So you don't know exactly what's going to be happening. Yeah. Fortunately, those things are pretty rare. I mean, it's a, it's actually a safe sport as long as you sort of stay in control and, and obey the rules and that sort of thing. But of all the things that you do, Samantha, what would you point to as the one that gets your heart pumping the most, you know, that, that really gets you focused, concentrated, jazzed, because, uh, you know, it's so critically important and, and, you know, your adrenaline's running. Whew. There's actually a lot of aspects of my job where that happens. <laughs> um, avalanche control is definitely one of them. <laughs> like trying to get a schedule written, right? Like <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> going out with uh, explosives definitely puts you on your game. Like you're focused and you're there. You're like, also, 
lift evacuation puts me on my game a little bit too. Usually we, we don't, in my experience on the mountain, we have very few lift evacuations, but the training for them is a little intense because you have to climb the tower. And then we actually have a machine that we hook over the cable and ride the cable kind of like a zip line down to the carrier. So you're at height with a lot of weight and a lot of ropes. And it's that you also have to be on your game and that can actually be pretty adrenaline releasing as well. Have you ever had to do that for real? Do a lift rescue? Because I imagine people might be a little hysterical and not so helpful. Right. And cold and unhappy. (laughs) Um, We've had one. This is my 17th year on the patrol. And this we've had one in my memory. Any uh, interesting anecdotes? Uh, What's the most the weirdest experience you've had as a ski patroller? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Um, I've had some weird medical calls. I went on one. I think I was maybe my third or fourth year as a patroller. And I went, it was called in as a potential knee accident and I couldn't find it. And I got called, I like went to the run and I could not find where this person was. And I eventually their friends wagged me, like flagged me down and he was in the trees and I went to go find him. And he had hit a branch straight on. And um, actually I think he tore his bronchial a little bit, but he literally inflated. Like he, I thought he was big kid. Like I thought he was big and kind of just a little bit heavy set. And we got him packaged up. We thought, and we're like sent off to the hospital extracted. And then when he sent us, he was like, sent us a thank you and a photo. And he was this skinny little, like 16 year old kiddo who he actually had filled the interstitial space of, uh, within his skin with air. And he was just kind of inflating. And oh I was my like, gosh. I know. <laughs> Which was crazy. That one was really weird. It kind of sticks out in my mind, too. I didn't know you could do that. I didn't either. And I was like, that actually happened. (laughs) You're passionate about pushing yourself always to be better. Culligan's water experts feel the same. That's why their smart reverse osmosis filtration systems do more than deliver the ultra-refreshing, pure-tasting water you deserve. Their app also lets you set drinking water goals, see water quality information, and get filter change alerts. And with cleaner, safer, great-tasting water available right from the tap, you can also feel good about all those single-use plastic bottles you're saving from landfills. Get started today by scheduling your free water test at Culligan.com. So let's go a little introspective for a moment because risk is a very personal thing and people handle it differently. So can you talk a little bit about how you handle the risk that you face in your job, just internally or mentally? For sure. And when I got asked on this podcast, I think I alluded to it earlier about how I got on patrol. I think I might have a high risk tolerance in general with uh, going out into areas, but I do like over the years I have developed like a limit where I'm like, okay, I can take this amount of risk. This needs to be done. It'll be like a task. I'll start out with the task that needs to be done and I will focus on doing it. But if it gets to a point where I'm like, I am actually really at an uncomfortable situation right now, I actually now know that I can pull back and be like, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to go out onto that slope without an explosive or I don't want to um, push that. I think some of the hard things that I have to come back and remind myself of or where I am personally that day. Like if I'm overly tired or if I um, have some sort of something else going on that's distracting me from the task at hand, I may want to reel back myself too and be like, my risk 
my ability to assess my own risk tolerance might not be as reliable as I want it to be. <laughs> and also I depend on my coworkers a lot too, like to be like, hey, you made a decision there that's a little suspect. And I, I'm wondering if maybe we should reel that back. Like I do depend on my coworkers a lot. That is phenomenal, Smith. I can't tell you how many of our other guests who, the ones who are experienced at taking risks, you know, like an, uh, a seasoned indie car driver, like, you know, he said almost exactly the same thing you did. I, as I've gotten older, I've given it a little bit more margin because, you know, the consequences of failure are so high. It's just amazing. So let, let me ask you this, you know, any professions about success and failure, right? I'm not going to ask you about failure, but I will ask you, is there any particular thing you've done over the last 17 years that you're particularly proud of? And, you know, don't be modest here. Tell us, you know, hey, I had this one thing, this one incident, or I trained this one person who was really hard to train, or, you know, what is it that you're, you really are, are most proud of? I do actually love my job. And I feel like every day I go out there um, and some, you're right, some days I don't do as well as I want to, but every day I come home, I'm like, success. <laughs> Another day that uh, went pretty well. <laughs> Um, I did when I, I was the evacuation coordinator for a few years. Um, and when I first got the job, I think it was in 2014 for our mountain, we hadn't done a full scale evacuation of our gondola, which I, I also alluded to earlier is really high and long and steep. Um, one of our spans is actually 43 degrees. So it's, uh, it's a pretty scary endeavor and they hadn't done like a full scale one. So that spring I coordinated and organized with the help of other patrols from the other four mountains or other three mountains across our area and our own patrollers, I organized a full-scale evacuation scenario. So we had a lot of actually management on the lift. We had about 53 people on the gondola and we managed to ride the entire gondola and open every door within three hours and get everybody on the ground and safe. It took a lot of logistics because not only do you have people actually riding the cable and lowering people, you have, then you have to be able to get people from where they are and they may be dropped into a double black diamond and they might not be an expert skier, right? You have to might get them to where they can get off the mountain. And then you also have to transport the people who have done the cable riding back to a place where they can either warm up or rest or start another span. And it's, it's a lot of logistics, but we did it. Well, and you know, it's an exercise. And the last thing you want to do is get somebody hurt during an exercise. So there's another pucker factor there. It's like, hey, I have to make sure this is all done safely, right? Right. So I have to ask, as a, as a woman in STEM, I've worked in a male-dominated field my whole life. And I know there's a good number of female skill patrollers, and many are in key pathfinders, and leaders in the profession, but are are there any lingering challenges for you as a woman in this business? Is it similar to like maybe the world that I've lived in or is it different or how would you evaluate? It might be similar to working in STEM <laughs> a little bit. Like I also find myself drawn to male dominated areas and it's a little bit like you have to be able to do your job, not just well, but you have to be able to do it like 150% to be keeping up with anybody else. Like you have to be extremely good at your job in all areas. And um, I've had it come up a lot where you have to have really thick skin. <laughs> I'm like, but I don't really want to have to have thick skin, but um, you do. And I think, and I don't think that's uh, specific to our jobs either. I think that's just, unfortunately, my, maybe where the job industry is a lot of the time. Yeah, I, I, I sort of have a selfish attitude on that. 
I have a selfish attitude on that. I, you know, that's why I like hiring women engineers because I look at them as equals, but if they're going to work twice as hard as the guys, Hey, bring it on. <laughs> you know, and I really am serious about that. And it's unfortunate sometimes that you have to feel that way, but it's so impressive to, to see people do that. Uh, so let's talk about culture a little bit. Culture is key to any profession. I know from my own experience, uh, just observing ski patrol in the mountain and knowing a few that it's a very tightly knit profession. Can you give us uh, from your from the inside view of the apple, you know, your view on on what the culture is like in ski patrol uh, that you live every day on the mountain? It is a very tight, like it's a small group of tight knit, knit people, and we're all very individual and very. Um, everybody has their own way of doing things, but. Um, we're all put together in one task, even though people have different ways of doing things, we'll get the task done. And when it becomes in a high risk or high emergency situation, we all have to depend on each other to do, be able to do the job. And there's a lot of trust that goes into that. And also after these high pressure situations, there's these bonds that form. So you're really pretty tightly knit with the people who work around you. I think maybe a little bit more so than other professions, because some of the times you're out there with one person and you're trusting that person with your life, essentially. Do you do a lot of um, mentoring for aspiring ski patrollers? And what kind of advice do you give them, especially um, girls, young girls or young women who are wanting to follow in your footsteps, just out of curiosity? Sometimes we have kids in school who come up and trail us for a little bit. But a lot of times my mentoring is just for the people who are just got the job on patrol. And I would say humility is kind of huge in our group. Like if you come in and you're like, I know how to do this already, you will, it will be like, no, <laughs> you might not be able to know how, like humility is, is very big. Um, and also being constantly able to learn, like wanting to learn more because it's a, you are always learning new things at this job. And then also um, patience because you're going to be told how to do the same thing. 30 ways by 30 different people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and there are so there's a lot of commonality between how you approach your job and we approach ours actually. Huge. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, also being women, uh, sometimes or like we're sometimes smaller in stature, like I'm five three, and I have to come up with different techniques of like running a toboggan that and I may have to go through the same exact areas that my coworker, who's like six foot, 200 pounds does, but I need to have different techniques to do it, right? Because I'm shorter and I'm like, I have to scoop myself yeah. back in the handles. So <laughs> there's definitely different techniques. Yeah. So I got a last question for you, Samantha, and this is kind of an off the wall question, but you know, puppies are a big hit on any show. So you got to talk to us about avalanche dogs. Are they the real deal? Do you really take them up there or are they out there just for show? Oh, they are absolutely the real deal. <laughs> Our Abby dogs are highly trained. So they go through the um, Colorado Rapid Avalanche deployment is CRAD in Colorado, which trains the, our Abby dogs. And they have to go through some ser seriously rigorous training in order to become uh, certified as avalanche dogs. So they, they can find people when they arrive on scene within minutes buried in the snow. So they are very well trained. Luckily, we don't use them that much. And so they can be called upon if we need them. If it's like an unwitnessed avalanche in the backcountry, they'll get called back there to search the scene and they do their job really well. But those are rare. And thank goodness. And so we get to have 
their presence on the mountain is great. They're great for PR and they are great for pick me up at the end of the day, <laughs> but they are for real. Yeah. But I would imagine that, um, you know, in the wake of an avalanche, the snow's, you know, very jumbled, very broken up, very soft. And, you know, you've got a dog now trying to run back and forth to find a, a you know, smell a human or whatever. Are they able to, to stay on top of the snow with their little paws or, you know, how do they navigate through that? Are they just kind of slogging through it like we would? That might be a misconception about an avalanche. Usually when they're searching the debris, the debris is pretty hard. It's like super firm. And that's one of the scary things about an avalanche is that it seizes up or it, it might even come down in hard slabs. But when it finally forms that debris at the bottom, it firms up really quickly. And that's why people get like pretty stuck in there. So um, the dogs will be searching a pretty hard debris field, which may be uneven, but they can walk on top of it. The difficult part is getting them to the debris. So sometimes they'll ride on their owner's shoulders, or sometimes they can ride on a snowmobile if it's far enough back. And sometimes we can take them in a toboggan. But yeah, that's a good point. They might wallowing in the snow getting there. And a total geek moment. That, of course, is the difference between potential energy and kinetic energy. Yeah. There you go. You have that hard snowpack at the bottom. There you go. All that all that potential turned into kinetic that turned into rock hard. Into like a huge, dense pack of stuff at the bottom. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, Samantha, we're we're just about out of time. And I just want to, you know, as an avid skier, it's been really, really cool to talk to you and get some insights into the sort of inner workings of of what is really a, an important profession that keeps people safe. And it's like, I know it's a lot of fun. You live it every day. But those of us who are out on the mountain are really, you know, we really respect, you know, the people in the ski patrol suits. It's like, okay, I better behave myself. And these people are doing a really important job. So thanks so much for spending time with us. And when I get to Aspen sometime, I'm a Breckenridge skier, but when I get to Aspen, I would love to uh, trail you or just go out for a quick uh, ski and, and uh, get to know you better. So it's really been cool. And thanks for spending time with us. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks so much. I learned a lot. And there's so many similarities in how you guys work as a team and we work as a team. It's just really amazing. Thank you guys both so much. That was Aspen Ski Patroller, Samantha Haberman. I'm Sandra Magnus. And I'm Sandy Winnefeld. Thanks again to Culligan Water for sponsoring this episode. Your life may be about taking risks, but your water shouldn't be. Learn more at Culligan.com. And check us out on social media, including a video of our interview with Sam on TikTok. Our handle's very simple, at The Adrenaline Zone. <laughs>